You can have your Bibles and turn with me again to he, uh, Ephesians chapter 5 this morning, our final sermon in this mini-series on marriage uh, before we step back into Genesis. Uh, I'm really excited about getting back into Genesis. There's a, a great deal. Genesis is so relevant. Uh, it's always relevant, but so very relevant to what we're, we're experiencing right now as a country, what we're experiencing as a society. And as we step back into Genesis next week, uh, we're going to uh, be introduced to a new character, right? So we, so far in Genesis, have seen God and the Godhead. Uh, we've been introduced to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three of them uh, uh, through the Father, the Word, and then the Spirit of God moving upon the, the deep, all a part of creation. Then we're introduced to Adam, who is created in, in God's image after God's likeness. And it is not good that man should be alone. So God created Eve, and we were introduced to Eve, uh, who was taken from man and made a helpmeet for man. And, and next week, we're going to be introduced to uh, the next character in the, in the narrative, which is the serpent. Satan, and we're going to learn about him beginning next week and the nature of his interaction with man, with God, and then what, uh, w- what that will mean for humanity moving forward. But we have one more week on marriage. Last week in our time together, we began talking about the nature of biblical marriage, the deferential nature of biblical marriage, all rooted in this idea, this concept that marriage is joyful sacrifice. The rewards of marriage are not found in pursuing self, they're found in pursuing the other, even at the expense of myself. And again, we talked about it last week. This is a Christian paradox, a biblical paradox, something which you cannot understand outside of living it, outside of the faith to do it. You can only understand it When you look back and recognize, yes, it is absolutely true. I trusted the Lord. I did what he said. I invested myself in the other. I poured myself into the other. Uh, For men, as we talked about last week, I dedicated myself to a complete and selfless love, investing utterly in my wife, giving her all the resources necessary for her flourishing and her wellness, directing her into that in love, as I'm called to do, and and completely setting yourself aside. And then this week, of course, talking to women. All of this rooting itself in the principle that we've been considering now for the past couple weeks, that God's design in marriage is essential in practice, not just in principle. If we don't live out the principles of a biblical marriage, then our commitment to the definition of biblical marriage as a one flesh union between one man and one woman for life uh, doesn't really have any teeth to it. We can go out into society, we can go out into culture, we can stand in the church, I can stand behind this pulpit, and I can tell you biblical marriage is a, a one flesh union between one man and one woman for life. And as we define marriage in the Bible, and as we live it out in the church, this is what marriage is to be. This is what marriage is always intended to be. And I can say all of that, and I can hold to that definition, But if in my marriage and if in the marriages of this church, we are not living out the purpose of marriage, we might have have it all right definitionally. You might see a church full of one man and one woman coming together uh, in a one flesh union for life. But if they aren't interacting with one another in the way that the Bible prescribes, the testimony that is intended of biblical marriage falls flat. We won't have any testimony in the church before our children. We won't have any testimony in the world 
which so desperately needs to see it. And why is that testimony so important? Because it's not just a testimony of the design of biblical marriage. Marriage is intended to be a, a, a reflection of the union between Christ and his church, which means marriage becomes one of the fundamental and basic ways that we are able to reflect the gospel into the eyes of those who are watching. And so last time we were together, we began considering the essential nature of living in this deferential marriage concept with men. Loving your wives as Christ loves the church. Christ's love for the church is a love of absolute sacrifice, manifest in example, being exemplary in direction and in development. It's not a passive love, it's an active love. It's a love of intention. Love with intentionality, dwelling with your wife according to knowledge, determined, purposed, and patient. Because that's how Christ loves his church. So much so that Christ literally gave his life for the church, but he didn't just die for the church. He lives for the church. He lived and he lives for the church. And this week we talked to wives. We were in Ephesians 5 last week. We're in Ephesians 5 again this week. And I'm going to read the same passage. And I am going to read the entire passage to you again. And then we'll talk about what it says about wives this morning. So you're there in Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22. The Bible says this. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. For he that loveth his wife loveth himself." For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. So in the marriage, the Bible says that the husband represents Christ. He is a picture of Christ. It doesn't mean he's perfect as Christ is, and that's where the analogy would break down. And we're going to talk a little bit about that, wives, this week. But he represents Christ, and the wife is the representative of the church. In the marriage, the husband holds the obligation of sacrificial love, the authority and the responsibility that comes with caring for and investing in his wife in the same way that Christ cares for and invests in his church. And the wife holds the obligation of deliberate submission. Now, the word used in the text here, there's two different words used, the same idea though, submission and reverence are words which have taken a decidedly negative turn, not just in secular culture as it relates to, well, everything really, but but more specifically as it relates to the, the woman's obligation in the marriage. But even within the church, this idea of submission has a very, very negative connotation, a very negative reputation as it were. And that's specifically because this concept of a female submission has been mistaught 
and misapplied in the church so often and for so many generations. And we're going to hopefully correct some of those mis- misapplications and, and um, misgivings and mis- mis- uh, misalignment of thought this morning as we walk through this. But as we do so, wives, uh, future wives, those who, who think through this concept, husbands, as you're trying to, to gain an idea of what it means that your wife is called to submit herself to you, I want you to remember the context within which submission is presented. Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, there it is, verse 24, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything, as the church is subject to Christ. As you think through the nature of how the church is subject to Christ... Would you call the nature of that subjection, the nature of that submission in any way, shape, or form negative? I don't think that anyone in here, if you think about the nature of the church, and not, not, not the church like the building and the stained glass and the, and the walls and, 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 and the seats, but the church as in the body of those who have placed their full faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you have never been at that, come to that point where you have placed your full faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross to save you from your sins, you're not a part of the church even if you're in church this morning. Even if you're listening online, you're not a part of the church if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. But as we think about the idea of Christ's love for those who, who have entered into this relationship with him by grace through faith. Is there anything about the nature of what Christ calls us to do as a part of his church that in our mind is negative? Well, I, I, would, I would dare say that with most of us, no. You think of the idea that Paul says that we, uh, that we present ourselves to the Lord a living sacrifice Romans 12, 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto the Lord, which is your reasonable service. And we say, yeah, that's absolutely the case. It's my reasonable service to align myself with the Lord, to be a living sacrifice for the Lord, to be on the altar for the Lord, to, to spend and be spent that I might live out the Lord's will in me. That as we think of Romans chapter 6, verse 1, what... Uh, what uh, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And the idea that we should not continue in sin, but rather we should, we should see our sin the way Christ sees our sin. We should align our minds and our hearts with Christ's goals, with Christ's intentions for us, recognizing his love for us, aligning with him in love, and then moving on to fulfill his will in our lives. And that is the call of the church, Right? as he commissions us to go and to reach the lost, that we would have in our hearts the same kind of love and the same kind of urgency to see people one to Christ that Christ himself has. So that as he died on the cross and his blood was shed for the sins of all mankind, that we would go out into a lost world and we would tell them that their sins are forgiven so that they may come and be recipients of the grace of Jesus Christ that was purchased for them on the cross. And we gladly align ourselves with Christ's passion, align ourselves with Christ's love, align ourselves with Christ's vision so that we might define our lives as the church as a, as a, a reflection of 
the degree to which we have successfully shown Christ to the world, successfully aligned ourselves with Christ. And as I say all of these things, I don't think that there's, there, there's too many, if any, women in this room who would say, yeah, uh, that, 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 that doesn't sound good to me, Pastor. That, that sounds like a problem that, 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 that makes me recoil. Well, no, right? This is, this is natural. This is right. This is good. Now, what did I not say about the church? That the church is not poked along by Jesus. The church is not treated with a heavy hand. The church is not uh, 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 relegated to a, a, a very small subset of opportunities and of responsibilities. The church does not recoil in fear uh, every time uh, we, we would seek to enter into Christ's presence. The church is, is, is one who looks at Christ and who sees in Christ liberty and who sees in Christ opportunity and who sees in Christ the fullness of our potential. Because Christ deals with us in a manner that allows us to live within that fullness, maximizing our potential. And Christ giving us all the resources at his disposal in order to live that out in our lives, in order to be everything that he would have us to be. We are, as Colossians says, complete in him. Now, carry that into your definition of submission. Because that is what submission is. And as we did with the husband, so too with the wife. I'm going to show you submission through showing you how the church submits to Christ. I gave you a brief summary of it just now. And then we'll take that and we'll carry it into the marriage and see how that plays out as we try to translate the church submission to Christ into a wife's submission to her husband. And while different, there, there might be uh, various ways that you might be thinking of that, that idea of submission or that idea of reverence as it relates to your relationship or relationships that you've seen, don't allow the things that you have experienced to override what the Bible teaches. We need to be loyal in definition to the Bible and its definition of submission. It's designed for marriage. Not our fears or our concerns about what might be or what has been or, or, or whatever the case may be. And if our wives model their submission to their husbands after the example of the church to Christ, first, that marriage will avoid the dangers and the pitfalls of the incorrect perception of submission. But second... As the wife aligns with God's design, she will not fail to receive God's results because this is a faith proposition. And this should be what every wife wants. And this should be what every husband wants for his wife. God's best, God's results, God's blessing. And it is found as husbands love their wives and as wives reverence their husbands. And by the way, as we look at this, and I don't even really get into this, but if you look even from a secular perspective, this is exactly how God built men and women to be and what they need to be. Women need to be loved. Men need to be respected. This is something which you can even read a tremendous amount of secular literature about. Women need to be loved. Men need to be respected. 
That is something that is intrinsic in us. It is the exact same concept, only made secular, that we find in Ephesians 5 as it relates to love and reverence, love and submission. So let's begin walking through the nature of biblical submission as it's taught to us, as it relates to Christ, and then we'll connect it to wives. So the church's submission to Christ is a, sacrifi- is a sacrificial reverence or sacrificial submission. Sacrificial reverence manifests in one, representation through alignment. Two, success by proxy. And three, delegated authority and responsibility. I'm going to explain all of these. Representation through alignment, success by proxy, delegated authority and responsibility. So we walk through these three points and understand how the church reflects these toward Christ. And then, as I said, we'll connect those dots. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. When Jesus told his followers that they are the light of the world, he was not expressing to them their inherent goodness, the inherent goodness of their own souls. Much to the contrary, Jesus would tell them in, in quoting Isaiah that there is none good but God. Uh, The apostles would say, there is none good, no, not one. There is none that seeketh after God. There is none that doeth right. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So Jesus was not saying to those who followed him, well, because you follow me, obviously you're the enlightened ones and you're naturally good people because you're following me. Uh, Therefore, you have a light that you need to shine to the world. No, much to the contrary. The light here that Jesus is speaking of is his light in them. As we walk in the footsteps of Jesus, we, by virtue of that path of light, the light that is Jesus, this message that Jesus gave, follow me, we shine his light. It's kind of the difference between the sun and the moon. The moon is not in itself luminous. There we go. The moon reflects the sun's light, right? And the light that we have from the moon as a satellite is the light that is being reflected from the sun off of its surface. Jesus is the sun. The church is the moon. Right? We are the reflection of Christ's light. Jesus would say in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, the disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. The word perfect in the Bible does not mean sinless, does not mean without flaw. It means finished or complete, having everything that is necessary unto its nature, unto its kind. It is the idea of, of, of having a, a fullness about you or having all, all that you need. The one who is as his master is the one who has completely risen to, to its peak. You and I cannot raise the bar above what Jesus said. Jesus is our starting point. He is our end point. And when the church lives this way, it lives in a very particular context of confidence. That when I am as my master, when I am doing things as my master has taught me to do them, when I am following in the footsteps of Jesus, it brings me to this place of confidence. And the confidence is this, that when the world hates me, this is what Jesus said, right? John 15, verses 18 through 21. Marvel not that the world hates you, but you know that if it hated you, if it hates you, it hated me 
before it hated you, right? The idea there is if all I am doing is being a reflection of my master, if someone looks up at the moon and says, oh, I hate the light of the moon, well, it's not the moon that's shining the light, it's the light of the sun. It's just reflecting off of the moon, right? So the moon says, I know if it hates me, it hated the sun before it hated me, right? Because it's the sun's light that is actually illuminating the moon. And then that is what is being reflected down to the earth. If you are walking the path of Christ, if you are walking in his footsteps, and that path leads you to rejection, leads you to suffering, leads you to uh, 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 people being angry, whatever it might be, they're not angry at you. If If you're walking in Christ's footsteps, they're angry at him. They don't, they don't like him. The job of the church is not to represent herself. The job of the church is not to go her own way. The job of the church is not to do her own thing or to be her own thing. The job of the church is to represent who? To represent Christ. When we have aligned with Christ, when we are as our master... We have become perfect. We have done everything that God wants the church to do. We have become everything that God desires the church to become when we are like Christ. That is our goal. We don't get to the point where we're Christ-like and then say, okay, now we're Christ-like and, and we've got all of, all of Christ's stuff down. Now let's, now, now let's, now let's advance past him. Now, let's, now let's, let's get to the next step. Let's get, let's get beyond him. It, you, you can't. It doesn't work. It can't work. It is enough that we are as our master. We are perfect as our master. The church's submission to Christ is a sacrificial reverence manifest in representation And that representation comes through alignment. Recall where that word Christian comes from. They were called Christians first at Antioch, the Bible says. It was a derogatory term. They were called Christians as a tongue-in-cheek way. Christian literally meaning little Christ. It was intended to be a derogatory term. Oh, they're just the little Christs. They're just the, 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 the little messiahs. But they took it as a badge of honor. Yeah, well, if we can, if we can but be little Christs, if we, if we could but be so much like our Savior that people look at us and see him, then, then we've accomplished our purpose, right? We have done everything that Christ would have us to do, and we are pleased. And the same thing can be said about the relationship between the husband and the wife. A wife is biblically submissive to her husband, when she is successful at representing him properly. And this means that she has aligned herself with his vision, his goals, and his expectations. Not because she is not her own, not because she does not have her own personality. Uh, There's nothing in the Bible that says the church does not have its own personality. There's nothing in the Bible that says that a church does not have its own character about it. I would imagine that if you went to churches, and I've, I've been to churches in China, if you went to churches in various places of the world, you would find that those churches have a distinct flavor about them as it relates to the manner of their worship, as it relates to their perspective, as it relates to these various things. But we will all have the same Lord, the same God, the same, as Ephesians would say, one Lord, one baptism, one faith, one spirit, 
wife, as you align yourself with your husband, as you seek to represent him, it does not mean that you do not have your own character, your own personality, but it does mean that you are in alignment with his vision, his goals, his expectations for, for the marriage, for the family. When Paul calls us ambassadors for Christ, the idea is that we are going into the world and we are representing the principles of Christ in our manner, our method, and our goals in the world. It does not mean that every ambassador is going to look the same, is going to act the same, is going to dress the same, is going to think the same. And it does not mean that we're all going to say, okay, what did Jesus look like uh, back there in, in 30 AD? And, and we need to dress that way and we need, to, we need to think that way and we need to act that way. Well, no, because we're in a different culture, we're in a different time. But that doesn't mean we cannot still represent him in our time, in our context and in our manner. So two wives. Submission means you are an ambassador, as it were, for your husband. Called to represent his goals. And the idea here, once again, is not that your husband is always right. It is rather the idea that your husband has set a direction for the home and you are in alignment. In alignment with it. And naturally, this immediately flies in the face of the modern sensibilities of the role of the woman. And thank God it does, because that idea, rooted in the philosophy of modern feminism, is inherently unbiblical. It's founded upon the determination to emasculate men and to strip from them their God-designed and God-given role. A man cannot have a wife going her own way, doing her own thing in contradiction to him, and be respected properly. It cannot work that way. Well, pastor, my husband just needs to get over it. He's, he's too fragile. No, he is designed by God to need respect. And he has been designed by God to be the one who is intended to lead the home. We talked about that last week. And for every husband that does not do that in this age, because men have already been emasculated so much, if you have one who is willing to lead don't tear that out of him. Don't tear him down in that. Respect that. It is a false dichotomy to say if a woman is under submission, then she cannot be strong, that she cannot uh, be capable. We talked about that a little bit toward the end of last week. This is a false dichotomy. Wives, you can be strong capable, decisive, a good leader. You can be all of those things and still be a submissive wife. The false notion today is that a woman is strong and independent when she successfully usurped the role of man in her life, where she has usurped the role of husband, where she has usurped the role of father, where she has usurped the role of, of, of fill in the blank as it relates to society, where she has usurped the role of breadwinner, where she has usurped the role of CEO, of, of, of supervisor, whatever it might be. When in fact, a woman usurping the role of a man as a leader is not making her a first-rate woman, it's just making her a second-rate man. Just let you think on that one for a sec. A first-rate woman is a woman who has her God-given design in view. And in the marriage, this means she has embraced her calling 
to allow her husband to set the direction and the vision for the family, not without her input. We'll talk about that. Not without her input, if, if he's loving her properly, right? Because if he's loving her properly, and this is why the, the, the combination of love and respect together is so important. Because if a husband is loving his wife properly, it will be, it will be so much easier for the wife to, to, to submit to her husband. Because when he is loving his wife properly and he is regarding her, dwelling with her according to knowledge, when he is listening to her and providing the resources necessary for, for, for her to be able to bring about what is needful in her life and then in the marriage and in the family, well, how easy, how easy is it for, for someone to follow a, a, a good supervisor, a good CEO, a good pastor, a good coach, so much easier than when he's a bad coach, so much easier than when he's a bad pastor, so much easier than when he's a a bad leader, right? It's so much easier to follow and natural to follow when a person is doing things right. So husbands, of course, this is why I preach to you first, because you do hold the key. You love your wife and watch how easy it will be for your wife to do what I'm asking not me, what the word of God is calling her to do today as you love her properly. And the whole point of this, you say, well, pastor, how do, how do I know? How do I know if my wife is, reverent, is, is, is in, in proper submission? How do I know if this alignment has taken place? Does it mean that she has to be a mindless drone? No, it doesn't. Uh, uh, pastor, how do I know if, if I'm being a, a submissive wife? Uh, does it just mean that I say yes to everything he says? No, it doesn't. How do you know? Well, a really good indicator is whether the marriage is walking in the same direction or is divided. Children should not see their parents living two different lives, having two different outlooks, following two different standards for living. They should see a husband who loves his wife enough to deeply and prayerfully regard her Regard her thinking, regard her perspective in terms of the structure of the home and family, finances, long-term goals, needs, and desires. And they should see a wife who, regardless of the final decision her husband makes, because the buck stops with him, seeks to do her very best to align with his decisions, his goals, his vision, and to represent these things in a manner which, in which he structures his priorities, goals, and vision and makes it her own. And again, this is very similar to what we might see or what we might think of as it relates to other power structures in society. A good supervisor, a good manager, a good boss will interact with those who are under him in authority to find out what is necessary, what is needful. How are you doing? Do you have everything that you need? What could be changed? How can I make your life easier? And he gets all of that feedback. And then once he gets that feedback, he makes a decision. And if he's doing it right, he makes that decision in light of the things that were said. But there are other things that he has to consider as well. All right, they said if we have this resource, things are going to be a lot better. However, we don't have the money to pour into that resource right now. Uh, and, and it will not give back as much as, as it, would, it would take. And we're just not able to be there right now. So we're going to have to set that one aside for this time. And so he doesn't implement that change. And the person under him might say, oh, I really, really wanted that. That would have been a real help to me. But the fact of the matter is, the buck doesn't stop with him. 
the, uh, the, the, the person under authority, the buck stops with the person that has the authority. He has to make that decision and he will suffer the consequences for that decision. And we talked about this last week as well. Wise, if you do this right and you stay aligned with your husband, even if you're not fully engaged with the decision that he might make, even if you're not fully in alignment where, where, where you, have, you and your husband have talked about something and, and, and you've got a perspective and he has a perspective on it and the, the, the perspectives are slightly different and you don't really come to see eye to eye and, and then when the decision is made, your husband goes with what he thought was best and you say, well, I don't really like that decision. I don't think that that's what's best. I don't, I, I, I don't agree with it. Whatever the case may be, yes, but you won't answer for that decision. Your husband will. That is his responsibility. That is his um, charge before God. And he will answer for that. But you, you will answer for whether or not you aligned. That once the decision is made, trusting that your husband took you into account, loves you and wants your best, is not trying to tank the family, is not trying to, to, to ruin you, is not trying to make you miserable, is doing what is best for you and your, your children. Blessings when you can have that confidence in him. Then you say... I'm going to align. This is the decision he's made. Now it's time to put my resources into representing that decision for the family. So this by no means strips wife, uh, wife of agency. Only she has chosen to exercise her agency as a subset of her husband's decision-making process. Once, as it were, the boss has made a decision, everyone under the boss must align with that decision and put their effort and resources into bringing about his vision for the company. Once a husband has made a decision, the wife and children, specifically in this instance as we're talking about the wife, aligns her resources with making his decision as successful as it can be. Just like the church, who, when Jesus Christ says this is the way we ought to go. It is not my job as a part of the church to question Christ's motives and priorities because I already know that he has my best in mind. I already know that he knows what is best for me better than even I know what is best for myself. What my job is, is to place all of my resources on the table to take what Christ has asked and to bring it about and to make it successful, to make him successful. And that brings us to our second point. The church, church's submission to Christ is a sacrificial reverence manifest in success by proxy. The church does not measure success by its own standard. And it certainly does not measure success by the standard of the unbelieving world. The church measures its success by Christ's standard. If the church measured success by the standard of the world, then we would measure our success by numbers, by money, by popularity, by honor, we would measure our success by how the unbelieving world speaks about us or thinks about us or how much people are entertained because that's what the world finds to be successful. By that standard, Jesus was a failure. He had nowhere to lay his head. He was rejected and he was scorned. He had a following, but we're talking about a very small percentage of the population. And yet Jesus was successful because he represented his father Properly, He aligned with every aspect of his father's will, his father's vision, his father's goals. And the church is the same way. As we align with Christ's will, with his vision, with his goals, 
That does not mean that I cannot go to Christ and pray as we did this morning and ask the Lord for uh, his graciousness and for his direction and for his help and, and uh, for, for these things. But every single thing that I ask, the Bible says, if we ask according to his will, he heareth us. And we know that if he hears us, that we will have those things that we ask of him. What's First John saying there? What First John is saying there is that it is our job we, that, that as we come to the Lord in prayer, what we are doing is we are seeking to align ourselves. We are seeking his resources to bring about that which is a part of his will for us. Because I don't want it if it's not the Lord's will for me. Because my success is rooted in alignment with Christ. So Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, this is the Great Commission. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. The success of the church is rooted in two things. Her alignment with Christ and so being in herself an accurate representation of Christ and then her success in representing Christ to the world and accomplishing the purpose to redeem the world to Christ. And wife, it's the same with you. Your success before God is rooted in two principles as a wife. The extent to which you were successful at aligning with your husband's vision for life accurately representing him in the manner in which he has structured the life in the home aligning with his vision and his desire for it. And then second, bringing his vision to pass, not just aligning with it, but then bringing it to pass, putting your resources into the effort, your creativity, your resources to bear in accomplishing those goals for the family. So that your success in a very real way is rooted in the success of your husband's vision. You probably will have a big hand in that vision. He will probably defer a great deal of that to you. But it will be his final decision and your success will be as that final decision, that final direction, that final vision is brought to pass. Your success is a success by proxy of, as it were, his success. And this is submission. And if you're successful at this, wife, then when you stand before God, that will be your success. That will be success. Let me put it that way. That will be reward. See, but that isn't how women around me live. They have their own priorities. They pursue their own ends. They don't even agree with much of what their husband says and thinks. They go one way. He goes the other way. They go off in their women's groups and they make decisions for themselves. That's not going to go well for them on the day of judgment. Because Ephesians 5 is still in our Bibles. And Ephesians 5 tells wives to submit themselves to their own husbands as to the Lord. We'll talk more about that in a moment. As the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands. If the church stands before God to reckon for how they followed Christ one day, and they said, well, yeah, we were knit to Christ, and he showed all of that love to us, but, you know, we decided to go in our own direction. We kind of thought his way, his way doesn't really work real well and it's not very comfortable. You know, all that, that take up your cross and follow me stuff. So instead, let's just, let, let, let's just focus on health and wealth. 
Let's, let's do it that way. That if you're a real follower of Christ, you're going to be healthy and you're going to be wealthy. When Jesus says, marvel not that the world hates you. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. So the church says, I'm going to go in another direction. I'm going to take things, you know, I'm going to take things on a different path. Yeah, I'm still going to, I'm st- Christ is still my head. Yeah, Christ, he's still the one that we're betrothed to, right? He's still the one that, that he, he's, he's, he's still the bridegroom and I'm the bride, but I'm going to do things my way. Christ would say this, I say that. Christ would go here, I go there. Christ would do this, I do that. That's not going to go well for that church on the day of judgment. Say, but, but it was successful. But we brought people in, but we encouraged people. But, but we built a bunch of wells in Africa. But, but people were fed and people were clothed. And those are things that Jesus wants. Yes, those are things that Jesus wants. Jesus wants people to be fed and Jesus wants people to be clothed and Jesus wants people to be healed. We saw that all throughout his, his life. But that is not his priority. Those were means to an end. But, but it was just another means. It was, it, it was, it was another means. We, we just did things our own way. Yes, but you did not align with your head. And that is what you are called to do. Align with Christ. Represent Christ. Your success is when Christ is successful. Now, as I say this, we must understand how very different this looks from marriage to marriage. When I talk about this idea of wife feminine submission, it is going to look very different in your marriage than it does in mine. A wife cannot look at the way another wife aligns with her husband in method, maybe in manner, because the manner that the mindset will always be the same. But in method, she cannot look at another wife's method and say, if I'm not like that, I'm not submissive. She cannot compare herself in that way because your husband may not want what her husband wants. The vision for the family, the goals for the family, and the manner in which your husband intends to see those goals carried out in his family might be different. One husband may delegate the vast majority of that responsibility for bringing about that vision and those goals to his wife because she's in, in very capable and, and she, uh, she's got a great idea for it and she's more organized or whatever it might be, she, he, he wisely may delegate to her almost the whole thing, but he's still responsible. Some other husband may say, you know what? The buck stops with me. I think I'm the best one to do this job. I'm going to do these things. And he may keep most of that responsibility to himself and not delegate those things out. Both of those could be properly adjusted, properly balanced lives and families, uh, marriages. And this leads to our final point in our definition of submission. The church's submission to Christ is a sacrificial reverence manifest in delegated authority and responsibility. Think about this as it relates to the church. Think about what we read in Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Jesus said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Right after he said, all power is given unto me, all authority is given unto me. After he said, I have all authority, what did he do? He delegated to the church the responsibility of reaching the world. Go ye therefore. Why? Because the church is submissive to Christ. 
because we are the body of Christ, because we are an extension of him, right? So he took all of that authority and he said, I am delegating to you now this responsibility and I'm committing to you the resources necessary to see it brought to pass. He extended a tremendous amount of responsibility and authority to his church to accomplish his goals. Jesus is still the authority, however. Any power that my preaching might have, any spiritual effectiveness of my words, any power that our church might have in evangelism, any spiritual effectiveness that we might have as we give and as we love and as we do the things that we're called to do is not rooted in us, our methods, our way, our words themselves. It is rooted in the authority of the Spirit of God that we wield by delegation from Christ. Christ gives us of his spirit. He thus gives us the resource necessary to accomplish his purpose. If I'm a submitted pastor, then Christ's authority by the spirit of God that I wield from the pulpit is Christ's authority, not mine. Is the spirit of God's authority, not mine. And what this means is I don't get to choose for myself what that authority is. I don't get to stand up here and become that strongman dictator and say, because I am the pastor, I expect this, 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 and this, and this, and this, and I start ruling over you as a tyrant. First Peter specifically tells me that I would rule not as one who is, a, um, who is over the flock, but as an example to the flock. Not as lords over God's heritage. That's how it's put in First Peter but as in examples to the flock. So I don't get to come in here and be a little, little tyrant, petty dictator. And if I do that, I can say, well, God has given me authority. Yes, God gives the pastor authority. But not that authority. That's me going past my authority that has been delegated to me by God and stepping into authority that I have claimed for myself. This is an operative authority that I have, that the church has, that individuals have in the church by virtue of Christ's authority in us. We operate as an extension of Christ. And this is God's design for the church. And this is God's design for marriage as well. Wife, the idea that you are aligned with your husband does not mean that he is going to hold all of the authority in himself. He might, he often will, delegate large portions of that authority to you. Sometimes all of that authority to you. Because he believes that the way that he will be most successful in his endeavor at taking the family from where it is to where he envisions it to be, at taking the marriage from where it is to where he envisions it to be, and taking the home from where it is to where he envisions it to be, he believes that the way he'll be most successful is by giving that authority to you, delegating it out to you. And again, we see this in various business aspects, do we not? We see this in politics all the time. Men who, there are men who are good leaders, and then there are men who are good leaders by proxy of the good people that they put around them, right? Some men in and of themselves, they've just got it. They can get up, they can say, do this, do this, do this, do this. Uh, just recently, they... Uh, the scientists discovered, I don't know if you saw this, they discovered the Endurance. The Endurance was a ship that took an Arctic 
um, uh, it, it was going, the, the, the intent of the endurance was to take a group of men who were going to cross the entire Antarctic in 1915 uh, from, from Britain, and uh, the endurance got stuck in the ice. And it ended up foundering. It ended up being crushed and sinking. And they just found it. And so I've been uh, reading this book again on Ernest Shackleton, and he was the leader of this group. Uh, and I don't, if you've not read about Ernest Shackleton, um, you need to read about that guy. Um, so I've been reading about Ernest Shackleton lately. That was a guy who just had it. The charisma, the ability, the decision-making ability. The buck stopped with him. He made decisions. He got his entire team alive back to civilization after, after, after that. that uh, it's just an incredible story. Read about it. Anyway, um, that's a guy that had it. Then there are other guys that say, you know what? I don't necessarily have it. I'm going to put good men around me. They have it. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the final decisions, but they have it. You know, for some husbands, the husbands say, you know what, I've, I've, I've got this under control, and, and my wife is going to do these things, and I'm going to do these things, and I've got all of this. And then other husbands say, I'm just going to, I've got a good wife, and I've, I found a good wife for a good, for a good reason. She gets to do all this stuff, because I just, I don't know. I'm not, not me. She's, she's going to do it all. Both of those can be relationships of submission, as long as the husband and the wife are rightly related to each other. So, it's a father's responsibility before God to raise up his children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But he might delegate a great deal of the day-to-day, day-in and day-out responsibility to nurture his children in the fear and admonition of the Lord to his wife. If he's at work all day, his wife was probably going to be taking a great deal more of that on. If he has chosen to delegate this, now if he just doesn't care and wife has to step up because he's not leading and whatnot, that's a different thing. But if he has chosen, my wife is the one who I'm going to have do this responsibility, either by by necessity or by choice. He's not yielding his responsibility and she's not stepping out of submission to make that happen. He is entrusting his helpmeet and his partner to partner with him in this life Heirs together the grace of life, and they are moving together to do what God has called them to do as a a family. And the responsibility of the husband will be, on the day of judgment, did he lead his, raise up his children in the fear and admonition of the Lord? And the responsibility of the wife was, did you do what your husband asked of you with the resources he made available in order to bring about his, his vision and his purpose? Maybe the husband is not a good money manager in the home, but he wants his family to be financially well. And so even though the buck stops with him, as far as the the finances are concerned in the home, because that, that is the responsibility of him to care for his wife and to care for his children, he might say, you know what, honey, you get the checkbook. Cut up my credit cards because I can't handle it. You take care of it. You take care of the buying. And, and I'll, I'll take a stipend every month or I'll come to you and ask about purchases because you've got the books and you're good at that and I'm not and you're, you're, you've got it all organized and I don't. And he can do that without stepping outside of leadership and she can do that without stepping outside of submission. Until she says, well, here's the thing. You're, do, you, you're making choices and I don't like them so now we have separate bank accounts and I'm going to do my own thing with my money and you're going to do your thing with your money and, 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 uh, and, and steps outside of the 
willingness to allow him to set the direction for the home. Each family will look very different. Another family, the husband pays the bills. He knows what's in. He knows what's out. And the wife may not know. She's just, husband says from one, every once in a while, hey, just want to let you know, getting toward the end of the month, uh, do your shopping trip after the first of the month, whatever. And she'll just say, okay, trust him implicitly, whatever it might be. And he takes care of it. Or it might be a partnership between the two. All of those things can, can be properly functioning marriages. So to what extent the husband keeps responsibilities or he delegates those responsibilities is going to be different. But it's always the same spirit. Just like to, to the degree that any individual church lives out the commission of Christ might look different as long as it's in the same spirit. And of course, as I just said, many churches today have fallen outside of that spirit. But it's the same spirit whereby the wife aligns with her husband as the representative of his vision and his direction for the family. She measures her success by proxy of the success of what he has laid down for the family. And she assumes the delegated authority and responsibilities that he gives her to complete and, and uh, uh, lives in complete dedication to that vision. The vision that he has decided for the home. And that is submission. See, in society and even in much of the church, people's understanding of the concept of submission is rooted in power relationships, superiority or worth. That the citizen who submits to his government is intrinsically saying that the government is above him in value, in dignity, in worth, or in power. That the servant, the employee, who submits to his master, his employer, is doing so because, and, and by doing so, he is by proxy saying that that employer is a better man than me, that my boss is, is smarter than me or is more talented than me. And, and, and people have the idea that, okay, because he's my boss, that means he must be a better person than me or he must be more talented than me. That the child who submits to his parents is declaring some superiority uh, or that, that the parents have some superiority over him. That the believer who submits to the church is thus inferior to the church, is dominated by the church, or acknowledges that the man at the top, the pastor, or the leader of that church, is somehow a better or more spiritual person than him. Or that the wife who submits to a husband is acknowledging that she is inferior to her husband. And this is the way that the world thinks about the relationship between authority and submission. But that is not how the Bible presents any of these relationships, Christian. True submission has nothing to do with superiority or inferiority. True submission has nothing to do with who is strong and who is weak. True submission has nothing to do with who is capable and who is incapable. True submission has everything to do with what God has designed as it relates to authority. God has designed things to be in a certain way and that in spite of of the perceived differences between my perception and God's design. If I do things God's way, it will be best for me. And that's a faith proposition. This is why in the Bible, Paul can write, servants, obey your masters as unto the Lord. Children, obey your parents as unto the Lord. Citizen, honor your government. Align with your government. Obey your government as unto the Lord. Not because these relationships reflect any superiority or inferiority, but because this is God's design. God has designed authority. Now, if you followed, then you will see what is not included in various attributes of submission. And I've mentioned these already to some degree. 
Biblical submission does not dehumanize the woman. Biblical submission in any, in any context is never a dehumanizing thing. It's not intended to be. It does not strip the woman of her free will. It calls her to exercise her will unto alignment and dedication to that which she has bound herself to and this institution of marriage moving forward where she has placed herself under the leadership of her husband. Any husband who would dehumanize his wife, would strip from her agency, would strip from her dignity, is not loving her, is not aligning his expectations with her, and is not thus seeing, and if he expects her to be dehumanized as a manner of submission, he does not understand submission. Because submission is not dehumanizing. Biblical submission is not alienating. Biblical submission does not mean that the husband is able to strip from his wife all other relationships and isolate her unto himself. Any husband who feels the need to strip from his wife all other relationships and isolate her unto himself needs to take a hard look at himself in the mirror and wonder why. Because he's not loving his wife. And and that is not a a requirement or, or even a context within which proper submission is being realized. Biblical submission is not slavery. Husband, you do not own your wife. You possess your wife. She possesses you. You two have an obligation to one another. We already talked about that, right? The obligation of marriage. But she is not your possession, an object for your consumption or abuse. She is your wife. She is not your housekeeper. She is not your cook. She is your wife. Now, in most homes, she might take on those roles in alignment with Titus chapter 2. She might keep the house as as Titus 2 encourages uh, um, the young women to do. And this is right, and this is good, and this is also by design, but that is not her identity. Her identity is your wife, your helpmeet, your co-heir to the grace of this life. Biblical submission is not dehumanization, it is not alienation, it is not slavery. One more thing that does not coexist with biblical submission, and this is entirely different in kind, so you'll have to shift your mind with me one more time. The last thing that cannot coexist with submission, and I've mentioned it already, is is emasculation. The idea of tearing down your husband. You cannot both submit to your husband and tear him down and emasculate him. And this is an important concept. In 1 Peter chapter 3, the Bible says this, Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be the outward adorning of plating of hair and of wearing of gold and of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price." The call here of subjection is one where the husband is able to be won without word by the conversation of the wives. There's a scenario being presented here of which maybe the women in this room have begun to think. And the scenario is this. Well, pastor, here's the thing. It's easy enough for the church to submit to Christ because Christ is perfect. My husband ain't. He's not perfect. And I am going to struggle. He struggles to love me. And I'm supposed to respond to him in submission. How do I do that when he's not being a good husband? How do I do that when he's not holding up his end? See, because your end is not dependent on his end any more than his end is dependent on yours. 
It'll make it a whole lot easier for you to submit when he's loving you. And it'll make it a whole lot easier for him to love when you're submitting to him. But they're not dependent on each other. Your responsibility before the Lord is yours regardless of what your spouse does. But here's the thing. In, in many a, a context of the church, particularly as it relates to submission, because women have wanted to take this posture of submission or culturally they've been expected to take this, this posture of submission, they have had relatively few ways at their disposal to help, the, to, to, to bring problems to their husband in a manner that would be effective. And so wives have developed, and again, I'm not, I'm not saying across the board here, but culturally, in cultures where female submission is an important thing, wives tend to develop a character trait in order to bring about changes of behavior in their husband without breaching the cultural expectations of submission. And the word that we use for that, that, that strategy among women is called nagging. That because a woman knows that it's not necessarily her, she's not going to culturally be able to, and in a church environment, not be able to culturally take the lead in her home type thing. She's going to nag her husband. She is going to nitpick at him. She is going to tear him down, perhaps even just in private. Bring him down a rung or two in order to bring him to a place where he feels vulnerable enough to give her what she wants. Now, Proverbs talks about this kind of a woman. Proverbs 27, verse 15, a continual dropping in a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. Proverbs 21, 9, and this is repeated in Proverbs 25, 24, it is better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than with a brawling woman in a white house. The idea of that continual dropping, have you ever had that before where you just hear the drip, 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 and eventually you just want to tear your hair out? We call that, in a human interaction standpoint, nagging. Where the honeydew list shows up here, and then it shows up there, and then it shows up here, and then it's in your lunchbox, and then it's everywhere, all the time. Did you remember? Get home from work. Hey, honey, did you remember? Oh, don't forget to... Yeah, you're about to sit down, but, but remember you said you would... Now, if a husband says, hey, honey, I need to remember this. Don't let me forget it. That's one thing. But nagging, to be forceful, berating, to tear your husband down, to emasculate him, to try to push him to work better, to earn more money by telling him how bad of a husband or how bad of a breadwinner he is, by tearing him down, by nagging him, by berating him, and for many women, particularly those who are in biblical marriages, they're entirely dependent upon their husband's income or their husband's decisions. A wife can feel that this is the only weapon that she really has at her disposal, has in her arsenal to bring about a change of behavior. And husband, if that's true, that's on you. But let's say it is true because you, you don't have a good husband or your husband is not where he ought to be. And a wife can feel as though this is the only weapon that she has to tear him down, and maybe never in public, maybe never in front of the kids, but to tear him down nonetheless. To be that constant drip in his ear, nagging him to begin something or to end something. And this is unbiblical. 
Again, this is different from respectfully reminding your husband of something. This is different from submissively disagreeing on something. This is when you step out of God's design and you tear your husband down or you nag him as a means of accomplishing some desired end. It's not God's design for accomplishing his purpose. Rather, the Bible says, likewise, you wives, be in subjection that if any obey not the word, that would be a husband. If a husband is not doing what is right by you, they may also without the word, without nagging, be won by your conversation. The word conversation today is a word which, which speaks of saying something. But the word conversation in our King James Bibles means our deportment, our manner of living, the manner in which we deport ourselves before our husband. While they beheld, behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, when they see the extent to which they, that, that when your husband sees the extent to which you are trusting in him to do his part, it will have a fundamental effect on him. You say, well, pastor, how can I know that? How can I know that if I do my part and submit, align with him and align with his vision and align for his goals, uh, that, that he will come around? Well, he, the extent to which he comes around, we don't know, but here's the thing. If we trust what the word of God says, then it's not just you and your chaste conversation. It's your chaste conversation coupled with fear, partnering with the Holy Spirit of God who has put these words in our Bibles to do the work in your husband's heart. If you step outside of that, you may get what you want, but you've done it at the expense of your husband, at the expense of his position, his authority, his dignity. And so at the expense of the will of God. Tearing him down will never produce what you would have it to in the manner that it ought to be produced. It was a couple of years ago I preached a message from Luke 20 on respectful appeal. How is it that a Christian can rightly appeal to an authority in their lives without coming outside of that authority? If I'm not going to nag and I'm not going to berate and I'm not going to attack and I'm not going to do these things, when they have all the power and I don't, how am I going to get things accomplished? And let me say this, wife, if you're having difficulty with this, maybe because your husband makes bad decisions or he's a very proud person or he has a very hard heart, please go listen to that whole message. It was Luke 20, verses 20 through 26. I'd encourage you to go back and look. It's online. It's on uh, Sermon Audio. It's, it's, uh, it's, I don't think it'll be on YouTube. I think it's too old to be on YouTube, but it'll be on Sermon Audio and on the podcast. But let me just remind you, of the few principles that I gave in that message on respectful appeal. How do you appeal to your husband? And by the way, this is not just to appeal to your husband. If you have a boss that you need to appeal to, as we talk about appealing to government, uh, school board, uh, mayor, uh, as we talk about appealing, uh, if if you're going to come and appeal to me in a pastor uh, to, uh, as a shepherd to flock relationship, in an authoritative relationship, these are the principles of appeal. Number one, Prepare all hearts through prayer. Remember to invoke God's help in the matter. You think of Esther and how Esther asked Mordecai and the Jews to fast and to pray prior to her appeal to the king. The whole reason not to nag or berate is because it's outside of the will of God. So if you are seeking to do it in the manner that is right before God, then you can expect his help. So pray. Prepare all hearts through prayer. Second, appeal to the proper authority. In a marriage, the chain of command is much smaller, right? You go to your husband, then what, <laughs> right? Uh, well, after that, if he's a member of this church, you can come to pastor. 
That is a, 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 a um, legitimate authority over him. You may not have any other authorities you can appeal to, maybe to his parents, if they have that kind of a relationship, to get, get father-in-law to talk some sense into, into husband. Maybe. I'm not saying for this for every, every family, but, of course, here's the thing. Christ is the head of the church. The husband is the head of the wife. But the Bible also says that the, husband, that, that the wife is the body, the husband is the head, but Christ is the head of the husband. So you can always go to God. Tattle to God about your husband. And see what, see what the Lord might do in your husband's heart. Number three, plan the timing of the appeal. Make sure your husband is properly positioned for an appeal. This may not always be an option, depending on the appeal, the timing and everything. But if your husband has had a hard day, if he's hungry, if he's already vulnerable for one reason or another, maybe wait a bit. Prepare him. Esther gave, what, three feasts before she gave her actual request to the king. Wait for the right time. Four, establish submission and elevate authority. Make the lines of authority clear. Do not come in a manner that is threatening or aggressive. Do not come trying to claim for yourself something which is not yours. Do not put your authority on the defensive immediately. Come in a manner that reflects the proper proper authority relationship. Four, uh, five, excuse me. Make a clear and comprehensive appeal. Be clear about the problem. If you... If you know you want something, but you don't know what it is, I've got a problem, but I don't know what it is, well, take time that's necessary to understand what it is, if at all possible. You can approach him with the confusion and say, hey, there's a problem. I don't know what it is. Can we talk through it? And he can help you. And that's wonderful. But if you, if you just haven't even thought about it, if you're just angry and you don't know why and you haven't even taken the time to think through it, if there's a problem and you don't know what it is and you haven't even taken the time to think through it, start there. Stop. Don't just appeal. Don't just jump, jump into that pool. Take the time first to think through it. What might be wrong here? Understand the problem. Don't just bring nebulous feelings. If you bring unsolvable problems, men are problem solvers. Bring unsolvable problems, it's going to frustrate him because he can't solve it. And if, by the way, it's not a problem. If you just want to talk with him, let him know that so he's not trying to solve a problem because that can be a frustration too on him and you. Number six. Come with solutions. If there is a solution, particularly one that falls within the context of his previously established vision, goals, and direction, hey, husband, this is a problem. It's happening in the house. I know you've said that you want the, this. You know, the, the, the house is, is a mess. I know you've said you want it clean. The, problem, the reason why it's a mess is because of this thing, and I need this resource to be available to me in order to see it happen. The kids aren't really listening. I need you to spend a little bit of extra time with the kids, making sure that they understand their responsibilities because you don't like it when you get home and there's toys on the floor. But at this time, I have these responsibilities to do. So, so I think that a good solution would be if you told the kids or if you did this or, or whatever, or could we get a box for the, for the toys to be put in? Bring a solution solution to bear that is in line with what he wants or what you two have agreed upon is necessary. This is excellent because it's in keeping with the highest principles of, of submission, of you as a wife and a helpmeet, 
helping him understand how the problems you face are thus problems he faces and how your solution can help him advance the goals for the family. And then once you've done that, once you have appealed, you have respectfully appealed to authority, you leave it in God's hands. You've done your part the way God has asked, and now it's between God and that authority. And for you, your rewards are already secure. As a meek and quiet woman who in the eyes of the Lord is of great price, it's between your authority and God, and you go back to praying and you give the Holy Spirit freedom to work on your behalf. Now, one last thing as we close. I'm sorry I've kept you a bit more today. Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. I've mentioned this already. As with all authority relationships, submission is not, has nothing to do with whether or not the authority is worthy or whether or not you like them. I hope you like your husband. But whether or not your husband is worthy of the authority that God has given to him, God has given it to him. Your your response to authority, submission, is rooted in the worth of the Lord who placed that authority over you. It's the same with parents and children. Children, you don't obey your parents because you've got good parents. You don't obey your parents because they make good decisions. You don't obey your parents because you respect them. You obey your parents because God placed them in authority over you. When you obey your parents, you are actually obeying God. You are showing God His worth. Wives, when you submit yourselves to your own husbands, as unto the Lord, you are showing the Lord His worth. And for those young ladies who aren't married in this room, as you consider the kind of man you're going to marry, this ought to be very high on your list. That you believe that he is a man that you can truly trust to be a godly man who will love you so that you can joyfully submit to him. Because you are going to have to submit to him if you're going to do what the word of God says, whether he's a good man or not. So get a good one. And be patient and wait for that good one. And listen to the authorities that are around you if they tell you he's not a good one. And consider carefully and be circumspect. Because if you find a man who loves the Lord more than he could ever love you and loves you as an extension of his love for the Lord, then the submission thing is going to be a whole lot easier for you. Because whether he's that kind of man or not, your responsibility will remain the same. You're going to be submitting to him, not for his sake but for God's sake. So, biblical marriage. A relationship of deferential love. Joyful sacrifice. Where the man sacrificially loves his wife and the woman sacrificially reverences her husband and they walk as heirs together of the grace of life. And when this works well, it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it's joyful and it's everything it ought to be. But you're responsible to do your part. And by God's grace, all of our marriages can reflect, not just in principle, the idea of one man and one woman for life, but in practice, the reflection of Christ and his church, the joyful, deferential sacrifice of marriage. And as our marriage becomes this, not only will you find in it great joy, but you will also shine bright as a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ into a world that deeply needs it. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. 
More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.